This is Inside Politics, Election 2022. I'm Steve Harrison. Today, we're talking national and regional politics. Of course, you can't have that conversation without talking about former President Donald Trump in the January 6th hearings on Capitol Hill. We have a guest with a lot of knowledge about Trump, and who recently spoke to the January 6th committee, Mick Mulvaney. He's a former South Carolina congressman from York County who went on to serve in the Trump administration, including a more than year-long stint as acting chief of staff. First, I'm joined by Jim Morrill and Tim Funk. Jim, you landed Mulvaney as a guest. How'd you get him to come on? Well, you know what? I just took a, a flyer on it. I just texted him and asked him if he would join us at some point. And, uh, you know, I've always found him to be pretty accessible and uh, and friendly uh, to reporters. Uh Unlike a lot of politicians these days, you know, I think the last time I saw him, frankly, was um, at a Trump rally in Rock Hill, South Carolina in 2016, when he was still kind of uh, scoping out this candidate for president. So we were lucky. I was lucky that uh, he agreed to do it. But when you say you texted him, I mean, that sounds like that you've covered him for a long time and you guys go pretty far back. Yeah, I don't remember exactly when we met, but but we, I've known him for a long time and, uh, you know, had his, uh, had his cell number. So that's what you do when you have a cell number. You use it. Uh, you, you know, text people, reach out to people. Yeah, he should have a pretty good insight into the Trump administration. You know, we'll, we'll talk about it. But he served in many different roles uh, in, in uh, his four years in the administration and uh, got to know the president pretty well. You know, even when he was chief of staff, he used to answer our emails and texts because he f- hadn't forgotten where he's from. He's from he's a Charlotte boy. He was recently hired by CBS News. So he's kind of one of us now, Jim. Uh, he is. And he's been all over the media lately. He's been quoted in a lot of stories. He's openly talked about what he told the January 6th committee uh, in late July. And he's been on CBS, obviously, and CNN and, and other media, too. So he's he's not shy about talking to the press. So, Jim, what is uh, foremost on your mind in terms of what you want to hear from Mick Mulvaney? You know, we've heard a lot of stuff about uh, come out of, of the January 6th committee, including a lot of stuff about the man who replaced Mulvaney as chief of staff, Congressman Mark Meadows, former congressman from North Carolina, and Cassidy Hutchison, who testified before the committee painted a pretty unflattering picture of him. She worked for him just down the hall from the Oval Office and made him sound very disengaged on January 6th, you know, scrolling through his phone. And uh, so I wanted to get uh, Mulvaney's take on that. I'm curious what it's like to work for Donald Trump. We all see Donald Trump on TV and things like that. But here's a guy that worked for him every day as the chief of staff, in fact. And what would surprise us about uh, if if we knew Trump like he did and I'd I'd be interested in that. All right. Well, enough talking between the three of us. Let's get to it. Uh, Jim, I think we've got Mick Mulvaney on the line. Okay, Congressman, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Mick Mulvaney grew up in Charlotte. He attended Charlotte Catholic High School and worked for an uptown law firm. Uh, Then you served in the South Carolina legislature for four years before winning a congressional seat in the 5th District in the York County area in 2010, and you stayed there until you left in 2017 to join the Trump administration, where you held a variety of jobs, first as director of the Office of Management and Budget, and soon the acting director of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. Then, in early 2019, you became President Trump's acting White House chief of staff, and you held that position for more than a year before leaving as envoy to Northern Ireland. And you're now a political analyst for CBS News. So, Congressman, thank you. 
and welcome. Thanks. I think you got everything right. You didn't go back far enough. I went to Charlotte Latin and St. Patrick's, if that counts for anything. Uh, let's get going. Uh, you said uh, you recently spoke to the January 6th committee in person. What's your overall view of the committee and the information that it's revealed so far? Yeah, those are two different questions, my opinion of the committee and the information. My opinion of the committee continues to be that it is a political thing. It is not a criminal investigation. It's not even a formal investigation. It is a political investigation. And that's fine as long as people acknowledge what it is. It's, it's, it's designed to make political points, to score political points. And I think that it's doing that. It is bipartisan because technically Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, former colleagues of mine, are both Republicans, but it is far from balanced. Neither is it the entity that the House voted for and approved. Um, whenever you do a special select committee in Congress, you have to create it by what's a House resolution. Like when we created the Benghazi Commission, the House voted on the structure of that commission, and then that commission sort of came into being. Um, the committee that is investigating January 6th doesn't follow the uh, resolution that was passed. Uh, what got passed was eight Democrats and five Republicans. It's clearly not that. And it was supposed to have Kevin McCarthy's appointees, and it clearly doesn't have that. So it's got all sorts of flaws, um, and it is a political thing. That being said, I think some of the information that's coming out of it is quite accurate. When Bill Barr puts his hand on a Bible and tells me what he thinks, I tend to believe that. And I recognize the fact there's no cross-examination. I recognize the fact that because the process is political, um, not all of Bill Barr's testimonies come out. The committee is editing it selectively. But none of that changes the fact that Bill Barr said X, Y, Z. None of that changes the fact that Cassidy Hutchinson said X, Y, Z. So, you know, I, I, it's not that I'm torn. It's just I try to be realistic about it. Does it have some strengths? Yeah. Does it have some weaknesses? Yeah. Is that a lot of our world? Yes, it is. It's not a DOJ investigation. It's not a criminal investigation. It's a political investigation. But I think some decent information is coming out. What has surprised you the most of everything you've heard? Oh, geez. Uh, that's a that's a um, I guess it was this. I had originally thought and for a year I defended the president because I thought that the riots were an accident. I thought I've seen the president give rally speeches dozens of times, if not more. And every single time the mainstream corporate press would come out and say, oh, Donald Trump is out there fomenting uh, violence in Battle Creek, Mission tonight or, or Minneapolis, Minnesota tonight or Santa Fe, New Mexico. And it never happened um, because in my mind, he wasn't fomenting violence. Um, so when violence did break out on January 6th, and I had not followed any of the run up to it, I, I guess I knew it was going to take place, but that was about it. But when it did happen, I'm like, this is this is terrible. Um, this is the worst day of my political career, I could think, in terms of seeing what was happening to the country. But I did not think at that time that President Trump was directly involved in having it happen. Since the January 6th committee has, start, has done some of its work, I'm now reconsidering that. There is evidence that would suggest that I am wrong. Uh, I have not reached a final conclusion about the president's culpability because I don't think there's enough evidence yet. Keep in mind, a lot of what Cassidy Hutchinson said would never be allowed in a court of law. It's double-level hearsay. That being said, it has caused me to uh, pause and reflect and say, okay, maybe I was wrong about the president's involvement. What more can we find out about this process to get to the bottom of it, to find out what actually happened? That's sort of where I am. And I think a lot of Republicans are in the same boat. Well, what did, what did you tell the committee when you went before them? Yeah, they asked me uh, questions in three different topics. They asked me some questions uh, about my texts and tweets on the day itself, on January 6th. 
They asked me some questions about my involvement with the Trump campaign, specifically some conversations with the campaign folks in the days immediately after the 2020 election. And then they asked me some general background questions on how a West Wing is generally run. How do you um, get in to see the president? What's the process for screening people to meet with the president? How does information get to the president? Those types of things. So those were the three general areas they asked me about. Well, you talk about text. Did you text uh, Mark Meadows, for example, or who did you text? Yeah, and they had that text. They had that text from the day of the uh, from the riots when I texted Mark and I said, look, he needs to do something now. If I can help, please let me know that text had come out in a previous hearing. So I don't think we broke any new ground um, in my interview on that text. The text, you know, they're like, what were you thinking? I'm like, well, I was thinking what I put in the text. This is terrible. This is awful. He needs to do something. What can I do to help? But there was another text that they had that I didn't have, actually, which means they got it from somebody else. Um, it was a text from me to the campaign team uh, right after the election, a couple of days afterwards. It was me to Ronna McDaniel, a couple of the folks at the RNC, Jared Kushner, and a couple of folks on the campaign, Bill Stepien and Justin Clark, both of whom have testified already to the committee. My guess is that's why they got these texts. It was a, a text response to a conversation I had had, or I had been on a phone call, um, where Ronna McDaniel uh, made it very clear that she thought um, that we had lost Arizona. And I was, as of that day, still on Twitter, on the news, telling people, well, here's why I don't think we've lost Arizona. There's this many number of votes outstanding. Donald Trump is down by this number of votes. And if the president gets X percentage of the votes that are outstanding, he can still win Arizona. And so when I when I heard the head of the RNC say we've lost Arizona, well, I'm still out telling people we haven't necessarily lost Arizona. That raises a giant red flag for me. So I, I texted that team that I met that I mentioned just a few seconds ago and said, look, if you all know something I don't tell me because I don't want to be out there sticking my neck out saying, I think we can still win Arizona if you folks are seeing the data that I'm not seeing and you think we've lost. So what the hell's going on here? As a result of that, I had a phone conversation with uh, Bill Stepien and Justin Clark, where they tried to make the case that they had a lot of evidence on lawsuits, uh, evidence on uh, fraud and so forth. And it was readily apparent to me in that conversation that uh, they had nothing that they had absolutely nothing. And I was very candid with them. The job of chief of staff is to be candid. And I said, guys, you got nothing. And they paused and Bill Stepien says, well, thanks for being such a good team player, Mick. And I lit into him fairly well. Don't exact remember my exact response, um, but it was pretty aggressive. In my world, that's BS. You don't treat me like that. You tell me the truth or else I'm out of here. And that was the last time I remember talking to anybody at the campaign. So that was a that was one of the tweets or texts that they wanted to talk about. We talked about it at some length. Let me ask you generally about the president. You know, we saw his public face and heard his public comments for four years. Uh, you saw him up close in the White House every day. Is there anything that about the Trump that you got to know that would surprise the rest of us? Generally speaking, what you see is what you get with the president. What you see publicly is what he's like privately. And I think that's one of his better qualities, especially when it comes to a politician. So many politicians put on airs or assume sort of this persona, you know, when they're on stage and they're different, you know, in the office. And he wasn't like that. He was generally what you see is what you get all of the time. Um, there were some sides to him that don't come out. It didn't come out just because there's no context for it publicly. For example, I know a little bit about how close his relationship is with his son that most members of the public would not know. And that's not something I talk about at length because that's private to the president and his family. But yeah, while there are, so while there are some things that I saw that, that would be different than what people uh, saw publicly, generally speaking, what you saw with Donald Trump was Donald Trump 100% of the time. 
Well, what do you think of him now, given everything that we've heard from the committee and and uh, in the news for the last months? And, and again, with the preface that, you know, I'm still waiting to see. I guess I'm conservative with a small C. I like to be slow to, to make conclusions. I like to gather evidence. That is that's what it, in part to me to, to be conservative. So I'm not I'm not finished in my evaluation of January 6th yet. But let's assume for sake of this discussion that everything that Cassidy Hutchinson said, for example, is true. That may not be the case. There may be people coming out and say, look, what Cassidy said is not true. And they may be credible witnesses. They've not come forward yet. Uh, we heard right after Cassidy testified, for example, that the Secret Service would be offering sworn testimony that, you know, what she heard was not accurate. I don't think that has happened yet. If it has happened, it hasn't become public. But let's assume for sake of this discussion that what she said was generally true and conveyed an accurate picture of the president's behavior around and up to uh, January 6th. That would be different in many ways than the president that I saw. I saw the president lose his temper. I saw the president yell at people. I saw the president bang on the table. I've seen a lot of high-performing, high-achieving individuals do the same thing. Uh, I never saw him throw plates. Uh, I never saw him, you know, she testified that he used to pull the tablecloth off and overturn the, the dinner settings and so forth. I never saw that. And I never saw the president, more importantly, I think, really, really heavily immerse himself in the crazies. He liked having some of these crazy people around him. He liked Rudy Giuliani. He liked Peter Navarro. I didn't, I didn't interact with him and Sidney Powell or him and Lynn Wood, but I knew the president had this affinity for some of these people who think differently, uh, who have been described by outsiders as the crazies. What I never saw was him interested only in talking to those people. The president managed when I was there by conflict. He loved to have people disagree. He loved to consider himself the juror or uh, the judge or the arbitrator. So if we had a trade discussion, he wanted Peter Navarro in there saying how we should, you know, uh, put tariffs on everybody. And then he also wanted Stephen Mnuchin or Gary Cohn in there saying we should be free traders. Okay. He liked that type of balance. So yes, the crazies had a place in the Trump White House when I was there, but so did the, the so-called normal people, the sane people. That was, that's the Donald Trump that I saw. What's being described to me now is a Donald Trump that had no interest at all in getting input from anybody who was telling him anything other than what the crazies were telling him. He had no interest in talking to Pat Cipollone about the law, had no interest in talking to, I guess, Mike Pompeo or Stephen Mnuchin or anybody about, you know, about elections and so forth. I mean, his election law team was a guy that sells pillows and a trade advisor who had an imaginary friend. Um, you could look that up. Peter Navarro got caught by the New York Times um, fabricating a guy named Ron Vara, V-A-R-R-A, who he cited regularly in his academic work. OK, ordinarily, that sort of disqualifies you from being a senior advisor to the president. But not only did it not disqualify Peter, at the end, he seemed to be one of the few people that had Trump's ear. So that, in my mind, is what was most different about the president was that for some reason, he got tired of having the balance in those conversations and was willing and interested in just listening to people that told him what he wanted to hear. Well, what he wanted to hear was that he won the election. What do you think? Uh, do, do you think he won it all or do you think Biden won fair no, and square? Biden won. And I, I can prove it to you. Again, go back to being a conservative with a small C. I have faith in institutions. OK, I have stood for election six times. OK. And I know how it works. OK. And if you think you have been wronged in an election, you there's 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 due process of law available to you. You can go and you can file lawsuits. You can bring in evidence. You can make arguments. And that the courts, if you have compelling arguments that an election was what you were mistreated, there was fraud, the election was stolen from you. The courts exist 
uh, to provide redress under those circumstances. If the courts look at you and kick you out and say, you don't have any evidence or this is a joke or whatever, then clearly you lost. And I think that's where Donald Trump was in 2022. I don't, 2020, I don't remember how many lawsuits there were. I think there's more than 50. So there's plenty of opportunities to come forward with evidence. But if you don't have the evidence, either it doesn't exist or you did such a lousy job of collecting it that you don't deserve to win in the first place. Um, that's your problem, not the courts, not the system. It's certainly not the Democrats' fault. If I blame anybody, if the evidence was out there and we didn't collect it, then that is a huge malpractice by the campaign team and the legal team. But you get your chance in this country and you, you get your chance. You have your say. And if the court says they laugh you out of court and say, you know, that we're dismissing your case, then you lose. And that's where Donald Trump had his chance to prove that he, he, he didn't win the election. Excuse me, that he didn't lose the election. He failed at that. And he as a result, I'm absolutely comfortable saying he lost the election in 2020. You know, you resigned on January 6th, presumably in protest over this. Looking back, how close do you think we came to having the election results overturned? I, I don't think the election results would have been overturned. I think at the, at the worst case scenario, they would have been delayed. If, for example, and you're, you're seeing some suggestion now by the January 6th committee that part of the plan was to get Mike Pence out of the Capitol so that he could not certify the election. If that's the case, then I think the plan was to simply delay. I don't think the plan uh, from the beginning was to have an armed insurrection to install Donald Trump as the president of the United States, regard or despite the outcome of the election. I think they were looking for ways to buy time to find more information, which is just as wrong, by the way. You cannot uh, have a riot at the Capitol for purposes of creating a delay. That's just as seditious and treasonous as you know, doing it to install an individual as the head of government. So uh, I'm not I'm not making excuses here, but I, I don't think the plan was to, to overturn the government. I think the plan was to find the delay. So for that reason, uh, I was never really that concerned that the military would take over, that Donald Trump would stay for four years, I, that we would end up in, in, in civil war. That didn't occur to me. But again, maybe that's just my personality and my nature. You're a lawyer. Based on what you've heard so far from the committee and in the testimony, do you think anybody will be prosecuted for any of this stuff or should be prosecuted? Yeah, I, I didn't do criminal law. So I, I, I'm giving you a sort of an educated guess at this. I did civil law. If there is hard evidence that people in the White House did coordinate with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, that might rise to the level of a crime. I think that was one of the most interesting things that Cassidy Hutchinson said was that Mark Meadows may have been in communication with the Proud Boys. I think it's I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say it looks as though Steve Bannon was absolutely talking to those folks. Now, whether or not Steve Bannon was talking to anybody inside the White House remains to be seen. If he testifies, maybe we'll find out. Um, so I think if you're looking for real criminal activity, you go down that road, keeping in mind that a lot of the evidence that you've seen so far at the January 6th hearing would not be admissible in a criminal hearing. Much of what Cassidy Hutchinson said was hearsay, for example, you couldn't use that. You could use it, I think, at a grand jury but you can't use it at actual trial. The most interesting development, I think, in the last couple of weeks, at least, on the criminal investigation was the fact that Mark Short got called in last week um, because we knew there was a Department of Justice investigation. They've charged, I think, 800 people with crimes uh, related to uh, the January 6th riots. Uh, but Mark's testifying under subpoena to a federal criminal grand jury is the first evidence I think we've had, outwardly at least, that the investigation has gone inside the, the White House campus. So clearly, it, it, in my mind, it means that they're looking now inside the walls of the, of, of, of the White House uh, facility. 
which means it could be Trump, it could be his inner circle, it could be a variety of people. But that's that's sort of a that to me that's a that's an earth shattering sort of development in the case. And he was close to Vice President Pence. He worked for him, right? He was his chief of staff. Yeah, yeah. you don't get you don't get much closer. I mean. <laughs> Mark, Mark and, and Mike are, are, are like brothers. So, I mean, that's not, yeah, you don't get any closer to that. Would Merrick Garland charge a, a former president? Um, maybe. Um, and I tell folks, look, if you want to look for hints, you know, and you want to look for something interesting or say something interesting at a cocktail party, say this, say that if uh, Merrick Garland indicts Hunter Biden, I think that's a really, really bad sign for the folks in the Trump circle. Because I think Merrick Garland, what a little I know about his reputation is that he's very much aware of the import of what he might be doing if he charges the chief of staff or somebody on the inner circle, let alone the, the former president. If he were going to do that, he might want to assert uh, some level of bipartisanship to show he's not politically motivated and indict Hunter Biden for whatever uh, charges he might be up on. So if that happens, I think the chances of someone in the Trump circle getting indicted go up dramatically. And that's something to keep an eye on. You know, you've mentioned Cassidy Hutchison, who was an aide, the aide uh, to Mark Meadows. Uh, she also worked for you. You've defended her testimony, I've seen in public. And uh, she described Mr. Meadows as being almost totally disengaged on January 6th, sitting on his couch, scrolling through his phone. What do you think he should have done and what would you have done? I've been watching most of the hearings. I, I watched most of the hearings up to Cassidy's. Um, I didn't watch all of them. I've been traveling. I missed a couple. But when I heard Cassidy's testimony, that's that was the giant red flag for me. I think she I think she testified on three different occasions that that sort of interaction happened a, a, a day before or a couple of days before the riots and then on the day of the riots and then you know, during the riots that she tried to engage with Mark and Mark sat on the sofa and texted. And sometimes uh, she described didn't even look up to talk to her, was you know engaged in texting on his phone and so forth. That to me is a sign that the, the White House is completely broken. Um, completely broken. Um, the, the, the chief of staff is responsible for the proper functioning of a White House. And you don't sit in your room and text and tweet. You're supposed to be out running the place. The president is obviously the final decision maker, but you are the chief of the staff. And you can't, disengaged is the last thing you want to hear in a description of a chief of staff during any moment of crisis. I have been very candid with folks. I, uh, I was talking with a, I was texting back and forth with a friend of mine, a colleague who was actually in the White House after I left. Um, that person was not there on January 6th. But I asked, look, from all the testimony I'm hearing, the only conclusions I can draw is that Mark was uh, completely incompetent and not capable to do the job or that he was having a nervous breakdown. Um, and this person responded that it was a little bit of both, that he was so completely overwhelmed with the job that he wasn't able to do it. Would I have been any better? I don't know. Um, I happen to think that one of the reasons the president replaced me was he just got tired of, of me telling him stuff he didn't want to hear. That's the chief of staff's job. You are the only person there who gets paid to tell the most powerful person in the world stuff they don't want to hear. Uh, and it's hard. It really is. And it it's not the formula for a strong, long-term relationship with the president, at least professionally. The, Barack Obama had four chiefs of staff in his first term. Uh, we went through four in Trump's first term. So um, it's not a job with a long life, generally speaking, because you are the person who has to go and say, Mr. President, you're wrong about this. Mr. President, this is bad news. Mr. President, we have to fix this. Um, and if you're not doing that, um, you're not doing the job very well. I mean, I know it's a long answer, but I'll say one more thing that the other giant red flag for me was Cassidy's testimony about when the president got in the SUV, the limousine to go up to the hill. And she testified that the president was upset because he was under the impression from Mark Meadows that he was going to be going to the Capitol 
Um, and then Bobby Engel, the head of his Secret Service detail, told him that he, that was not the plan. That to me means that Mark Meadows was either incapable, incapable or unwilling to tell the president that he couldn't go to the Capitol or wasn't going to go to the Capitol. And he punted that to some lower level staffer. Not that Bobby Engel is an unimportant staffer. He's the head of the circuit service details, a critical uh, position, but it is subordinate to the chief of staff. Bobby Engel doesn't get paid to tell the president stuff he doesn't want to hear. That's Mark Meadows's job. You know, when Cassidy Hutchison uh, described that and described the scene that she said she heard from Tony Ornato, who you used to work with as well, about the president trying to grab the steering wheel and, and take it to the Capitol and then grabbing the Secret Service agent's neck uh, as if to choke him. Um, she said that she heard that from Tony Ornato in a, in a room near the Oval Office, near Meadows' office. Uh, that was probably the most dramatic testimony of, of her testimony. Do you believe her on that? Um, that would be out of character for the president that I knew. Um, not that I can't see it being true. That would be out of character for him. I believe that she was told that story. I don't believe she would lie and make that up, whether or not it actually happened. I, I, I have no idea. And for me, guys, it was that was not the key. I, that was not the key. I know it's, it's very sensational. People picked up one because it's very physical and dramatic. I was more interested in the fact that he seemed like he was really, really angry for not going up there. I don't care how you manifest that. I mean, maybe you fly into a purple rage and yell and scream and kick the, you know, kick the roof of the SUV instead of grabbing the wheel or grabbing your secret service detail. I don't care how it manifests itself. But when she said he was angry for not going, that's one of those pieces of evidence that made me wonder myself, hang on now, hold on. I, I have been saying and thinking for a year that this whole thing was an accident, that this was never intentional, that this was not the plan, that this was a peaceful, another peaceful Trump rally that just took a bad turn at the last minute. But if there's a suggestion that the president was expecting to go to the Capitol and participate in this and that he had planned that in advance, that undermines my original sort of perception of things. So that was what I cared about, not the not the specific examples of how that anger was manifested, but simply that he was angry for not going, because that meant to me that he was planning on going ahead of time and wanted to be there. You know, you talk about the president being angry that day. Um, I remember seeing you in January of 2016 at the Winthrop Coliseum for one of Donald Trump's first rallies in the Carolinas. And I asked you why so many people supported him. And you said folks are angry. They're angry at President Obama at the time. Uh, they're ang angry at the Republican establishment. They're looking for the angriest candidate. Are they still that angry? I think a lot of them are. I think that's why you still got, you know, President Trump pulling, what, 45 percent of uh, you know, of Republican potential Republican primary votes. By the way, I remember that rally. That was interesting. That was one of the first times I ever actually I didn't even get a chance to meet the president. That I did not meet Trump that night. Um, I couldn't get back through hmm. security to see him. So um, I forgot about that. I also one of my other recollections of that night was how few people in the building I recognized. And I had been at that point involved in York and Lancaster Republican politics for almost a decade and um, could pick out maybe five or six people. All these folks were people who were not coming to Republican rallies. They were truly ordinary Americans. And I stand by um, that analysis that people were looking for the angriest candidate and they got it. I do think that some of that is changing. I, I certainly think that there is a, a large swath of voters on both sides who are displeased with the establishment of their own parties who think that. Um, that, you know, that the government works against them instead of for them. The system is no longer beneficial to the ordinary American. I think that is a real and tangible sort of um, anger and frustration. At the same time, I think there's also folks um, who think that, OK, as long I, I may be angry and disappointed and frustrated 
but I'm not interested in ripping the country apart because of it. Um, and they might be looking for someone who can have some of the same policies, perhaps, that Donald Trump had without the baggage and the anger and the fire and the venom. Um, someone who is more of a consoler or a unifier in chief, someone like Tim Scott, for example, a personality like that. Um, I think there is a, a, a certainly a change where people are angry uh, and disappointed and frustrated, but they don't want to reflect that in the violence uh, that was manifest on January 6th. You know, you wrote an op-ed in the Charlotte Observer uh, not too long ago where you said Republicans, uh, when Republicans start testifying under oath, that other Republicans lost the 2020 election and then broke the law to try to change that, Republicans should pay attention. Do you think they are? I do. And I think that's why you're seeing the polling data change. Certainly, there's a whole swath of Republicans, including many elected officials, who refuse to watch the hearings because they're political. And as I think I tried to make the case early on, they're absolutely political, but that doesn't mean they hold no value. Uh, So certainly, there are people who are not watching. There are people, however, who are watching, and I think those are the folks who are saying to themselves, okay, um, how do I get Trump policies without Trump? And I think that's sort of a conversation that is happening now more out in the open that wasn't happening, say, six or eight weeks ago. I think it's creating space for other Republicans to run for president. I think that's why you're seeing Mike Pence be a little more assertive, Mike Pompeo talking about running, Nikki Haley, I think name would have to be on a list, as would uh, Tim Scott's, and of course, obviously, Ron DeSantis. Um, I think if there was a mistake um, that Nancy Pelosi made, and she does not make many, um, I don't care for her politics, I don't care for her personally, but I, I think she's very, very good at what she does. I think she made a mistake in excluding the Republicans that McCarthy wanted to put on the commission, and here's why. I think that if Jim Jordan was on the committee, I think that if Andy Biggs was on the committee, those are two Republicans that, that Nancy vetoed. Uh, and that gave rise to the to the boycott by the Republican Party, uh, at least the Republican leadership in the rank and file, other than Liz and and uh, and Kinzinger. If Jordan was on this committee, that a lot of people would be watching who are not watching. And I don't know if it would change their mind about Donald Trump generally, but it might may change their minds about who won the 2020 election. I don't think I don't think any reasonable person can watch the videos and the testimony and come away thinking still that Donald Trump won in 2020 um, and that the riot was peaceful and loving because that's what that's that's what they've been saying, right? That's what Donald Trump has been saying. That it was a, a loving riot. It was full of love. That's what he says, right? No, it wasn't. And I think that ordinary, rational, reasonable people could watch these hearings and say, all right, I might still like Donald Trump. Um, but when Bill Barr tells me that there was no real evidence of fraud and that all these things they hear about on the internet are just bogus, they might believe that. And when they think that it was a peaceful riot and they watch the videos, they think, wait a second, um, I know what Trump is telling me, but I also know what I can see with my own eyes. I think that was a mistake on Nancy's part. If she really wanted to help the country and help folks come to the realization on their own that Trump lost the election and that the riot was violent, uh, she should have put Jim Jordan on that committee. Would you vote for Trump in 2024? Oh, probably not. I mean, knowing what I know now, keep in mind, in my mind, I'm not finished yet. There may be a slew of witnesses who come forward under oath and say that everything we've heard so far is wrong. And I'd, I'd be curious to see um, if that happens. Um, but left to my own devices right now, I'm friends with everybody that I just listed. 
Okay. I'm Nikki Haley is my governor. Tim Scott is my senator and a friend of mine. I went into Congress with Mike Pompeo and served in the Trump administration. I was in Congress with Ron DeSantis. I was in Congress with Mike Pence, and he was my vice president when I was in the White House. Go down the list. I know all of these folks and am friendly and on good terms with all of them. It would be hard for me to choose between any of them in a Republican primary. I will tell you this. I think Donald Trump is probably the only Republican who can lose in 2024. Uh, unless there's a dramatic turnabout in the economy, unless there's something really different that changes. And that could happen. Obviously, two years is a, a good bit of time. But if you had to look your hand over right now and say, who's the weakest candidate against Joe Biden or Gavin Newsom or name a Democrat, Kamala Harris, Donald Trump may be the only Republican who could lose. He's still leading uh, in polls among Republican voters. Yeah, no, he's not. Um, he's leading in polls amongst Republican voters when you put it to a ballot. When you ask the question, um, do you think Donald Trump should run for re-election in 2024? 52 to 55 percent of Republican voters say no. That's the first time we've seen that number move. Yeah, you put him on a ballot against Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott and Mike Pompeo, he's going to win because he's got that same 30 to 35 percent of the base that is still loyal to him. Um, can he be beaten in a head-to-head race? Probably. Can he lose in a general? Yeah, I think he probably can. I think it's better for my party and thus better for the country if he doesn't run. Let me take you back to the time when you were chief of staff. It was at the time of Trump's first impeachment uh, over withholding military aid to Ukraine for what you acknowledge were political reasons. What did you think of that now? No, 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 no. That's not true. That's not true. And that, that's become the history of it, right? That's been a narrative of people cutting and pasting that, that, uh, that press conference that I admitted we did it for political reasons. Not true. Absolutely not true. We did it for two reasons. We did it because we didn't think the Europeans were helping out and we thought that the Ukrainians were corrupt. And I had to laugh. There was a front page article in the New York Times two weeks ago about how Americans are worried now that Ukraine is so corrupt. We don't know where all money is going. Like, oh, where did I hear that before? Maybe we should, maybe Biden should withhold the aid. Oh, no, we can't do that because that would get him impeached. No, it was never for political purposes. I have been consistent from the very beginning. What I said in that in that press conference was that politics is always going to impact foreign policy and that the Donald Trump foreign policy was going to be different than the Hillary Clinton or that the Joe Biden policy uh, would be and that it's always going to be different and that politics does impact foreign policy. That does not mean that I admitted that we withheld money from Ukraine because we were looking for dirt on Joe, on, uh, on Hunter Biden. In fact, I can tell you for a fact that we were not. I think that's when you said get over it and got the response that you did. I said he won the election. Get over it. That's it's going to be elections have consequences. And that while Obama didn't send uh, lethal aid to the Ukraine. okay, we did. That was that was a that was a result of the election. Elections have consequences. And we did more for Ukraine um, than uh, than the Obama administration did. By the way, people always give us a hard time. I think we withheld the money for 25 days. And it still went out before the statutory deadline. So I'm not even sure what the allegations were in the first place. Um, you are not entitled to, uh, as a foreign nation, first of all, you're not entitled to U.S. foreign aid in the first place, but you're certainly not entitled to it when you want it. You will go on our schedule when we give you the money. And I was obligated under law to get it out the door, I think, by September 30th. And we did. Hey, let me ask you to put your political analyst hat on. Do you know Ted Budd from Congress? Did you all serve together? You probably came before him, right? Yeah, we didn't. We didn't. I don't think we overlapped in our service, but I know Ted. I, I dealt with him when he was uh, in the House and uh, and I was in the White House. What do you what do you think of his chances? I think they're pretty good. I think they're probably better than Pat McCrory. I mean, I I like Pat. How do you not like Pat? He's a great guy. Um, but what is what what did Pat prove to us? That he's capable of of losing a statewide race. In fact, Pat was a, an incumbent Republican governor who lost his race in a year when the Republican candidate for president won his state. 
I'm not sure that's happened in my lifetime. Maybe it has. I'm sure it has. And I just don't know about it. But that's the electorate telling you that it's time for you to go. I, I think Ted will be a good candidate. I supported Mark Walker um, in that race. Mark was a good friend of mine. We uh, served together, but I have no, I, I like Ted. And I think Ted will be a good candidate. Um, you're not hearing much about the Democrats pouring money into North Carolina, which leads me to believe that they're seeing data that uh, that race is not winnable. Uh, if you start to see money flow in, that may be a different signal. But right now, I think Ted Budd's in good shape and will probably be the senator, next senator from North Carolina. Uh, you talk about some South Carolina politicians, namely Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, as being in the in the mix for uh, the nomination in a couple of years. What do you think their chances are? What do you think? Uh, what are other people saying about them? Well, I think they're in the top tier. I think they've got as good a chance of being president as anybody in the country except Donald Trump, because I think it would be hard for anybody to beat Donald Trump. It's not impossible, but I think it's doable. I think Tim probably has a slightly better chance of beating Trump than Nikki does, because Nikki is sort of defined in terms of Donald Trump. And Tim is sort of his own man. It's sort of that Youngkin model where you don't run pro-Trump, you don't run anti-Trump, you sort of run as your own person. Uh, and Nikki would be hard pressed to do that, given her, her role in the administration. Not that that's being in the administration is a bad thing. I'm, I'm proud of my service in the administration. But from an, an elected politics standpoint, it's hard to beat your former boss. Right. Pence would have the same the same difficulties. So I think they both got a, a really good chance. And, you know, if you had to come up with a list of the 10 most likely Republicans to be the next president of the United States, she would be on there. If you were to say who is at the top of that list of likely presidential nominees, who is that? Yeah, right. Well, Trump, I think, because he's got that base, right? So if you end up with a, a five-way race for the Republican nomination, he likely gets the, the nomination. And then anytime you get into a general at this point in this country's history, it's a coin toss. But if you take Trump out of the analysis, I think the top two candidates right now are probably Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott. Mike Pence is a tremendous man and a, and a really good candidate, but probably the only person out there that the Trump people actively hate. They would tolerate Ron DeSantis. They could tolerate Nikki Haley. They could tolerate Tim Scott. But they might be actively against Mike Pence because of all the things that Donald Trump has said about him. So I think that's a real impediment and a hurdle for him. But I think uh, Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis, for a variety of reasons, are probably the two most likely successful challengers to Trump at this point. Tim Scott hasn't made much noise about that, though. He hasn't been traveling to New Hampshire or Iowa, has he? And he, and he might not run. You, you just asked me who would be on the list. Hey, listen, yeah. one, of the, one of the great things, at some point, we might come to the conclusion in this country that maybe the best person for an office is the person who doesn't really want it that badly. <laughs> um, and that if you want something too badly in politics, maybe that disqualifies you from office. And it'd be nice to have somebody who takes the job reluctantly and has not had an ambition you know, for the last 20 years to be there. So you re- recently became a contributor to CBS. What else are you doing these days? In fact, today I'm writing for McClatchy, uh, the Charlotte Observer. They just asked me to write another piece. Um, I do some very private consulting. I give some speeches. Most of my work is in Europe. It's still, I've been canceled here to a large uh, to a large part. Um, typically, um, someone in my position would end up on corporate boards, teaching classes on university fellowships, that type of stuff. And that's been pretty much cut off for anybody in the Trump administration. I was uh, laughing that Anthony Blinken gave a, a, a commencement speech um, a couple of weeks back or months back. At a major university, I texted Mike Pompeo and I said, did you ever get invited to give a commencement speech? He goes, I don't think a single member of the Trump cabinet did. I could be wrong about that. I never did. The political cancel culture here is real. There was a petition at my alma mater, Georgetown University, to ban me from campus simply because I worked for Donald Trump. And by the way, that was before January 6th. Europeans don't care. They just want to understand how American government works. And so I'm doing a good bit of work over there. In fact, I'm leaving tomorrow to go overseas. Well, you're going uh, on that trip to Fatima in Portugal, which is uh, 
a pilgrimage site for Catholics. Uh, is that why you're going? Well, it's work, but it's not paid work. I am a participant in an international Catholic lawmakers group, and we have a retreat for young lawmakers, people under the age of 30. And apparently now I'm an elder statesman. So I'm <laughs> going to give the benefit of age and wisdom to uh, young Catholic leaders from all over the country. What role does uh, your faith play in your politics? Oh, you know, I get asked that a lot and I everything. And I mean, it's, so, it's sort of hard if you're a person of faith or I guess even a person of no faith, that defines who you are as a person, which probably defines your politics. I've only ever been Roman Catholic. I don't know what it's like not to be. Um, and it is who I am. So it's sort of like saying, how does being a white male uh, influence your politics? I don't know, because it's just, it's who I am. It's what I am. And that's, um, I don't apologize for that. I just try and be honest with people. If they agree with me, they agree. If they disagree, they disagree. We just try and be uh, figure out a way to disagree without being disagreeable. What, the, what did you think of the Dobbs decision in the Supreme Court? I liked it. I think it's an interesting challenge for Catholics. I think it was the right decision legally. I never understood the, the reasoning in Roe to begin with that there was a federal right to this. And I thought that the court was wrong in taking this issue away from the states. And I thought that returning it to the states is the right thing to do. Keeping in mind, there was never, 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 never a federal law granting the right to an abortion. That, that would never pass. would never pass. That that never existed. That law was created by the Supreme Court, and I thought that was wrong. And I think now you get back and has to go where it belongs into the states, and there will be states that put limits on abortion through the elected legislative process, and there will be states that guarantee the rights to abortion through the elected legislative process. And I think that's the right way to do it. I think the interesting challenge from a Catholic perspective is okay if you've been arguing for all these years that it should be a decision by the states, then what do you do when there's a federal bill to ban abortion? If you if you really believe it's the state level, I think that's going to be an interesting conversation. How we end up dealing with um, interstate commerce is going to be interesting. If Texas really does believe that abortion is murder, um, would it be a crime to leave the state for the purpose of, of conducting an abortion in California? Some fascinating uh, issues of American jurisprudence that we're going to deal with for the next 20 years, probably, but I think it's healthy because I think it's the way to work things out and let people participate in the process as opposed to have something mandated on them by this unelected Supreme Court as they did in Roe in 1973. Hey, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us on this. Uh, is there anything else you want to say to listeners in and around Charlotte? You know, I just that I've been listening to this for my my entire life, so it's nice to be on WFA. I don't know how long the radio station has been around, but it's been a while, hasn't it? I Forty years, I think. Forty. Okay, then I'm then I'm older than the radio station. So I feel <laughs> there's another thing in Charlotte that I've been around longer than. So um, it's uh, it's uh, it's nice to be here, and I appreciate you all taking the time. Well, keep listening. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, y'all. So that was an interview with former President Donald Trump's chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, a fascinating half an hour, uh, Jim, the entire thing. It was so interesting to hear not only kind of, I thought, his high level thoughts on January 6th and national politics, but also kind of the the detailed in-depth scenes from in the, inside the White House when he says, you know, I've seen the president pound on tables. I've never seen him throw plates. I, fascinating. I think it was insightful what he said about. Mark Meadows, his successor in the White House on January 6th, I forgot what he said exactly, that Meadows had to be either something like catatonic or <laughs> or um, having a nervous breakdown. And um, it's, it's sort of hard to believe that the chief of staff would just sit there on a couch scrolling his phone. 
And the other thing I thought he said, he said a lot of interesting things, but one thing was that he thought Trump would be the weakest Republican candidate in 2024. The only Republican who could lose it in 2024. It was certainly not a ringing endorsement of Trump. I mean, he's become a, a part of a growing number of people who work for Trump, saw him up close and personal, Barr, Cipollone, and, and others, and, and have essentially become critics. He said he doesn't think he should run again. Boy, uh, <laughs> if you work for Trump, that doesn't necessarily mean. I mean, these are the big moments in these people's lives, and yet they have a pretty low opinion of their boss, actually. Should tell us something. Yeah, and yet he's not ready to, uh, you know, indict anybody. Uh, for all the stuff that we've heard in these January 6th hearings, you know, he's kind of uh, holding back on, on to hear more evidence about what people did or didn't do that day that led up to that. I was really interested when he talked about the president's kind of style of what he said was having the the different sides of the different opinions, and then he would be judge and jury. And he talked about the, I think his exact quote was that the president that he knew didn't quote, immerse himself in the crazies. So that the, that let that January thought process didn't seem right to him. But then of course, the same time is when you lose an election that puts you on tilt, that may have put Donald Trump on tilt and may have created kind of a different person than he worked with. And he knew that was my thought. You know, some of the testimony we've heard in the January 6th committee is that the crazies held a lot of sway toward the end. Uh, There was one December 18th meeting in the Oval Office where Pat Cipollone, the attorney, and another attorney for for the White House had to come in and they were talking, Trump was talking to Giuliani and was it the mattress guy or was Sidney Powell? And, uh, you know, they, they almost got into, into a fistfight, it sounded like, from the testimony. It's interesting, too, what he said about Pat McCrory coming back to North Carolina. I feel like I have a better understanding now why McCrory was given the, <laughs> the back of, of, of Trump's hand that, you know, you couldn't even win your own state when I won your state and you were the governor. So I could see a little more about how they thought he was kind of a loser and didn't want to endorse him. It it was also interesting how he feels like universities and corporate boards and others have canceled, essentially canceled Trump people. That's how radioactive I think this administration has become. And I can't believe the Republicans would renominate him because I think he's right. I I think he'd he'd be tough to beat in a primary, but in a general election, even Biden, who's incredibly unpopular, People are saying, well, at least to beat Trump, maybe he can beat him again. So that wraps up another edition of WFAE's Inside Politics podcast, Election 2022. For Steve Harrison and Jim Morrill and Tim Funk, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks. 